You're tuned in to the Tin Roof Farm Radio Show, a podcast from Greenville, South Carolina, on all things food, beverage, locally roasted coffee, and craft beer. I'm John Malik, the lesser half of Greenville's best-loved chef couple, John and Amy Malik, and we're broadcasting from our Tin Roof Farm in Piedmont, South Carolina. Thank you for listening, and welcome to the show. Welcome, I'm your host, restaurant consultant John Malik, and today's show is sponsored by Sunshine Cycle Shop here in Greenville. And if you're a cyclist, as I am, and you're looking for a shop to call home, Sunshine is the oldest independent shop in Greenville, and my personal favorite. Owner Mike McMillan has raced both on-road and off, and his folks are knowledgeable and enthusiastic. And you'll find him in that funky Quonset hut on Highway 291 near Piney Mountain, And they feature Santa Cruz, giant and felt bicycles, plus all the goodies and accessories you're going to be looking for. Sunshine Cycle Shop, for the love of the road. And today's show features a short essay on our chickens, an interview with Julia Schultz of Stella's Bistro and Stella's Brasserie. And if you'd like to see photos of the farm or learn more about today's sponsor, have a look at our website, tinrooffarmradioshow.com, and just search for Julia Schultz or show number three. Thank you and enjoy. We have chickens here on Tin Roof Farm. Uh, we, right now, we have about 25. And when we bought our farm uh, about two and a half years ago, uh, one of the things that attracted us to it was it's something we were actually looking for is to have enough land that we could have some farm animals. And so we have about three acres here. And so right after we uh, went, right after we bought our farm, one of our neighbors gifted us three chickens, uh, a rooster and two hens. And... Not long after that, uh, the hens started to lay eggs. And for a couple of chefs, for anybody really, but especially for a couple of chefs, there's no, there's no comparing fresh eggs uh, pulled right out of the backyard to cook and bake with versus grocery store eggs. There's a huge difference. And it has been a real joy learning and understanding chickens. So now we have about 25, and some of these birds were gifts, some of them... Um, we bought at Tractor Supply, uh, but a few of them we've hatched. So that brings us to today's uh, topic of conversation on, on Tin Roof Farm. So in order for a chicken to hatch eggs, because typically what happens, the hens in the morning, usually it happens in the morning, uh, about an hour or so after they get up, anywhere from 8 a.m. until well, 12 or 1 o'clock or so, they'll go into the barn and in one of the... Um, in one of their little cubbies, they'll lay an egg. And it might take them anywhere from half an hour to an hour to lay that egg. And they're very vulnerable, so they need to be protected when they're going to lay. So they're not going to do it out in the open. That's why they'll typically do it in a corner of the barn. Sometimes they'll make their own nest, even though we've got uh, multiple uh, nests for them. Now, typically what will happen is they'll lay that egg and then they'll go on about their business. But occasionally, one of our hens will go broody and that is an internal signal that it's time to sit on eggs. So how does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, I wish I knew because it, <laughs> it is a mystery. But when they when they go broody, then they end up sitting on the eggs. And, um, you know, that's no small matter because it takes an egg 21 days to hatch given the right conditions. So we need 65% humidity and about 100 degrees of uh, temperature. 
the hen will sit on the eggs, and she knows that she's going to be there for at least that, that amount of time. She'll get off just to, you know, a couple times a day just to go get something to eat, get some water, and then right back onto the eggs. So if she if she gets off the eggs for too long, if she gets distracted, or if, you know, occasionally we've had one that have gone broody for a few days, and then it just, for whatever reason, they, they're done. They don't get back on the eggs. So, um... One of our hens has gone broody three times. Uh, we call her Mama Hen. She's a, practically the smallest of our chickens. And she's a very gentle little bird. Boy, when she gets broody, she is feisty. So she will protect her eggs. So she'll sit on that. She will sit on those eggs. And she, occasionally another chicken will come in there and say, well, I want to lay in here too. And so she'll just make herself flat. And um, the other chicken goes in there and lays eggs on, and, you know, tries to get them in the nest or whatever. It is... <laughs> It's quite entertaining. Recently, she went broody, and she had three eggs underneath her. And uh, so so what we've done every time is, you know, you go in there with a Sharpie, and you'll mark the eggs, put a date on them, just in case another hen does go in there and lay the eggs. So you can always, so we'll always go in there and check on a daily basis and lift her up and, and look for uh, any uh, extra eggs. And then, sadly, though, these eggs did not hatch. We got to day 22, 23, 24, all the way up to day 27, and so at that point, one of the eggs started to smell, and we and we knew that we had to get rid of those eggs. So why did that happen? Well, it could be uh, several things. Maybe one of those eggs was not fertile. Uh, with three roosters, we made the assumption that all of our eggs are fertile. Uh, there is a way to check, but we didn't check. Uh, we just made that assumption. Or maybe one of the other hens, when they were climbing all in, inside that box, uh, they could have scratched the cuticle with their with their toes. And so the cuticle is this this uh, protective layer that the hen applies as the, as the egg is being laid. And so typically a fresh egg uh, will stay fine on the counter for as long as six weeks. We don't refrigerate our eggs unless we end up washing them, and then we'll because then you'll end up washing off the cuticle. Uh, so you can't really see it. It's just a um, it's just a thin coating that protects the egg. So maybe one of these eggs got scratched by another chicken, or maybe Mama accidentally scratched it, or or something, or maybe one of them wasn't uh, wasn't fertile. We don't know, but we had to go in there the other day, and uh, I lifted her out. I carefully lifted her out and sat her on the table. Um, pulled the pulled the hay and the eggs, and uh, we had to had to get rid of those eggs, unfortunately. And then I uh, dusted the um, her little nest with uh, some lime. To, it's for the Protect her from mites. Put fresh hay in there, and put her back in. And, uh, poor little girl. She was just beside herself, looking for her eggs. Um, and then she sat down. She, their chickens are very vocal, and so she was. She was obviously in a panic and looking for her eggs. And then she sat down in the nest and and looked at me and sort of put her head down. And so I went back inside the barn and there were two eggs that had been laid today. So I put them underneath Mama and and. Uh, she clucked uh, contentedly. So she's been sitting on that nest for like 28 days. So the odds of her being broody for another 21 days is just fairly long. Usually it, it, they, they won't go that long. But we're hopeful, and so we will see what's happening. And so hopefully the next time, uh, the next podcast, we'll be able to report back that, that Mama successfully hatched those two eggs. And we will... Uh, once again, be part of that joy that comes from watching uh, uh, little chickens come to life. And Welcome to the Tin Roof Farm studio, Julia Schultz. Y'all, Julia is one of my favorite people in Greenville. Her and her husband, Jason, 
own two of our most popular restaurants in town, and that is Stella's Southern Brasserie in Simpsonville and Stella's Southern Brasserie in the Verde area of Greenville. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me out to the beautiful farm. <laughs> Good. Did Julia had the nickel tour when she got here? Did you enjoy that? I did. I yeah. uh, got to meet some of the turkeys and the dogs, uh, saw the goats, and uh, had a little lesson on beekeeping. So all very interesting. I'm enjoying it. Maybe next time you come, if you're not on your way to work, you can actually pet the goats. But, yes. You know, it's it's so funny. Goats, um, we're all familiar with what goat cheese smells like. And once you once you pet a goat or scratch him behind the ear, <laughs> your hands smell like you've been fondling goat cheese. You know, it is, it is uncanny. Yes. Uncanny. So, Julia, didn't you go to culinary school? I did. I went to Johnson & Wales when it was in Charleston. Do you have a... I mean, I, I can remember the first real food memory because uh, my mom cooked all the time. Do you have a food memory of something when you were very young like when that when the light came on? Both of my parents were really good cooks, so I spent a lot of time in the kitchen with both of them. I think of first food memories, I think of pasta mm-hmm. and seafood because those were two major staples in the house. I also think about um, homemade birthday cakes. My mom would always sure, do yeah, yeah. homemade cakes, yeah. um, which was fun for every, everybody to participate in. I would like to continue that tradition in my family because um, it's not so common anymore. Uh, another one that comes to mind is mom's chicken soup, of course, comfort food when we're sick. And um, my dad also made the Italian pasta fajoule. That was a staple, which is the uh, tomato bean right. Italian right. soup. Right. Yeah. Now, you're, so, you're from the coast, right? I'm from the coast. I grew up in Hilton Head. Uh-huh. My uh, father is from the Philadelphia area, and my mom grew up outside of Pittsburgh, and they met in the Jersey Shore, which where I was born, and then they moved to Hilton Head when I was one in 1980. Mm-hmm. So that's where I grew up, in Hilton Head, but in an Italian Northeast <laughs> household, so... <laughs> A little bit different, but Hilton Head is full of transplants. It's kind of yeah. like Florida. Nobody's <laughs> really from there. <laughs> Hilton Head is, is Greenville's more Southern than Hilton Head, for sure. Right, yes. right, right. Exactly. So at what point did you decide to go to culinary school? Well, um... Were you, all, were you already working in a restaurant? Yes. So when I got my first job in a restaurant, I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my parents were urging me to go make money somewhere. And in Hilton Head, uh, the easiest job to get as a teen is in restaurants because of the tourism and Mm -hmm. um, lots of jobs available. So I did that. And my first job was at a restaurant called The Boathouse, which is still there, different ownership, but it's it's a restaurant that's on the water, on the docks, and it has a a boathouse where they store boats inside and Mm -hmm. then you can call and have your boat taken out and they bring it down to the dock with a forklift. And so, so they opened a little restaurant there and that was my, that was my first job. And it was owned by a doctor and his wife. He was a cardiologist. He decided that he was not going to serve fried food. Yeah. So great idea. Uh, (laughs) 
for <laughs> feeding hungry tourists. Who <laughs> right, that'll food. go over big. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, um, guests didn't really like that too much, but you know, the the st- servers would always have to explain why we don't have fries and right. stuff like that. But right. so anyway, that was kind of funny. But that was my first job. I just loved it immediately. I thought it was. I thought all the servers were so funny, and uh, you know, I was fifteen, and they were all in their twenties, and. Um, the back then, you know, that was kind of before the big restaurant boom and chefs and all of that. Right. And, um, and there was three black ladies that ran the line and ran the kitchen uh-huh. and they were amazing. They were really good cooks. They were fast. They were organized. They were tough yet loving. They were, it was amazing. And they could crank out, you know, 300 covers on a Friday night. And there was three of them back there. And, I loved watching them and I loved eating their food and I loved spending time back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, I just fell in love with the whole restaurant business pretty quickly. When you told your <laughs> folks, Hey, I want to go to culinary school. Was there any, was there any pushback from them? Like, or were they, Oh, that's a great idea. Sweetheart, you'll be great. <laughs> well, it took a little convincing <laughs> on my part. <laughs> Um, they, you know, they knew that I really enjoyed working in the restaurants because, Mm -hmm. you know, after I got that first job at 15, I continued to work in restaurants all throughout high school. And I was telling them, I think this is what I want to do. I I think I want to go to culinary school. Well, my father was more supportive of it than my mom because he used to have a restaurant before I was born. And I think that's where I, where some of my interest came from in the first place. And since they both love to cook, he definitely appreciated that side of things. But they definitely also culinary schools was a little bit more you know expensive than just going to a state school. So we sure. looked at we looked around. We looked at College of Charleston. We looked at the hospitality program at University of South Carolina. But I was pretty dead set on going to Johnston Wales. Once I went there and I saw it, and it was in the old cigar warehouse down in, in Charleston. Right. And they had all yeah. the kitchens and. It was just, it was exciting for me to walk in there and see all that equipment, all the classrooms Mm -hmm. and all the labs. And, um, you know, I've, as far as being a a student, I've always been better at things when I'm up and moving around and that's just more my, my personality. So, um, looking at a classroom versus a kitchen was no, was a no brainer for me. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of, that's kind of how I ended up there. And after much, uh, begging and pleading, finally, um, and some scholarship applications, finally made my way to Johnson & Wales. So so yeah. now is that where you met your husband? Was he in culinary school at the same time? Or, uh, or he, was he... I met him while I was in school, but he was not in school. He moved to Charleston to go to Johnson & Wales, and he went there for about a semester, and then he kind of quickly realized he was learning more just on the job. In the restaurant, so was he working for um, Frankly at the time? He was working for Frankly at oh, the yeah. time. Oh yeah, he's so lucky to have done that. I know Frank took him under his wing, and and like I said, he kind of quickly realized that that was much more of an education, you know, sure. and the, the appropriate thing for him to do. So, so that's kind of what he did. And the, how we met is that I started working for Maverick Southern Kitchens okay. while I was in school, and uh, which is the same restaurant group. That own that used to own um, slightly north abroad high cotton. I actually worked at one of their properties called Slightly Up the Creek, which was a little seafood place on Shannon sure. Creek. Sure. Okay. All right. That was my first job within Maverick Southern Kitchens, and I ended up spending, gosh, I don't know, eight to ten years working with that company. Mm-hmm. So 
Mm-hmm. That's what brought y'all to Greenville, correct? Was High Cotton? Yes. Downtown? Mm-hmm. Yep. So Jason was the executive chef there? Yes. And eventually, I went from working at Slightly Up the Creek, which I where I was um, when I... When I was in school, I was working in the kitchen there mm-hmm. on the culinary side of things. I did mm-hmm. baking, pastries. I worked the garbage station. I occasionally worked the hotline. I always had about two jobs during college. And, you know, usually I had one job in the kitchen and one job waiting table somewhere so I could actually make a little bit of money. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and um, and so I kind of went back and forth through some of that. And I ended up at starting as a server at Slight North Abroad. And that was, I started working there once I graduated college. Um, so I could, I was available full time. I could really focus on, on working there. I'd wanted to work there for a while, but, um, I had so much going on with school and second job and whatnot that, um, they said, just wait till you graduate and then come work here. So that's what I did. And once I started working there, that's kind of when my, I guess, real education started as far as, you know, it was the first time I ever worked for a restaurant that was... Um, it really opened my eyes to, you know, fine dining and I could see the, you know, the transformation of a guest having that experience, you know, and I was a server on the floor and just being a part of that, uh, team was, was really transformative for me in terms of true hospitality, the real dining experience, just like I said, kind of transforming. It was my it was my education into fine dining for sure. And so I was there for I I think about six years. I started on the floor as a server, and then I um, you know kind of worked my way up to bartender, assistant manager. And then when I left, I was managing the dining room there um, and did that for a few years. And when they decided to open the High Cotton in Greenville, Jason and I moved to Greenville and relocated with the company mm-hmm. and moved here and opened the high cotton here. By the time I started working at Slide North Abroad, Jason was already at high cotton as the executive chef there. So we never actually worked together oh, okay. until we in the same restaurant until we moved up here. Now, were you, were you at high cotton when that painting was stolen out of the lobby? <clears throat> Remember that? Yes. I was there that night. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what was it? What was that painting valued at? <laughs> I don't know. It was a lot. And it Five, was, but what, would, what, what, what did y'all have in it? Y'all probably had 500 or a thousand into it. Probably. probably. Um, yeah. Mr. Elliot. I remember Mr. Elliot picked it out. It's one of his favorite pieces. It was kind of at the bottom of the, uh-huh. of the staircase there. And, um, yeah, we were getting ready to close up and I was kind of doing one of the final walkthrough. And, and what I noticed first was some dust on the floor, which I looked up and it was from somebody ripped the thing off the wall. And it was um, the sheetrock dust from where the screws came out of the wall. Huh. And I said, oh, my goodness. And it was it was it was right there in the lobby. And the reason I bring that up is because we my wife and I had our restaurant at the time, uh, 33 Liberty. Somebody. Take what was it? A college kid or a, a frat frat brothers doing pranks or something like that, right? Right. So they steal this painting off the off out of the lobby of High Cotton. The next day, it's in the Greenville News, and now the value of the painting has ballooned. Yes. And then it's and then it's in the Charleston paper, and then again, the value of the painting has has blossomed like five thousand dollars. And then it get, get picked up nationally, and it's just like in the New York Times or something. I know it's all over the news. Twenty thousand dollar painting, so you know. <laughs> And so I yeah. used to have a I used to have a weekly email and I and I asked my 
clientele. Would somebody please come in here and steal a painting? <laughs> I know. <laughs> you know, the local, the news team showed up. It was like the best PR. You, right. You can't yeah. buy press like that. And and that's the, the stuff like that. It's so fickle. You never know what is going to go viral. And that was in the days before social media. And for whatever reason, that story just went just went crazy viral. Yeah. Must have been a s- slow uh, news day. Well, moving right along, Julia, we're going to take a question here from Instagram. And Brian Kenner would like to know, where do you draw your inspiration? Not only in cooking, but in the environments of your restaurants. Well, I'm going to start back at Slutty North Abroad. As I mentioned earlier, it was sort of, it's sort of my benchmark. It was sort of the inspiration of when I, you know, realized what real hospitality is and giving the guests that, you know, that kind of that magic moment where you see the service and the cuisine and the teamwork and it all comes together and, and all of a sudden you have this great dining experience. So when we worked for Frank Lee way back when, way before farm to table was a thing or a buzzword or whatever you want to call it, he did that. You know, he always believed in that. It was something that was really important to him. We bought as much local as we could down there, um, whether it was seafood, produce, chickens, all of the above. Um, So that was something that he really believed in. It was something that he drilled into our heads from the beginning. So that was something for Jason and I, both working under Frank, that was something that we both really believed in. That we would see every day the farmers coming to the back door and he'd talk to them. They would bring their kids and they Frank would give them a scoop of ice cream or a cookie or whatever. You know, you got to know them and their families. And it was just something that we got really used to that we decided to carry on. So I would say, first of all, that would be our kind of our food inspiration. We believe that when you get great ingredients, it, it makes our job's a lot easier to produce quality dishes because you're starting with something great from the beginning, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, so that is inspiration for us. We just believe in sourcing locally. We, we say regionally the American South is kind of where we draw from because I'm from Hilton Head. Jason's from Louisville, Kentucky. We met in Charleston. So you're just kind of pulling from all those different areas and everything in between just kind of helped frame our cuisine and our menu and what we do. And as far as the the dining experience, again, at Slight North Abroad, when I was a server on the floor there, the the service there is just impeccable. There's so much nonverbal communication between the servers on the floor. They have little hand signals and eye contact and and, and it's a true team. I mean, if somebody needs help clearing entrees off of a table, all you have to do is look at somebody a certain way and they know what you need. And so that's always been my goal. I I don't think I'm, I'm... ever going to get there. I don't know because it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, um, takes years and years to be able to craft a team like that. Right. It's, know, a, it's, the, it's a journey. It's not yes, a destination. Yes. It's something you strive for. That's daily. right. So that's where I draw a lot of inspiration from was just, that was kind of, you know, my, um, my background and, and where I came from. And I always wanted to not replicate that, but to be able to, provide something that was on the level in terms of the overall dining experience from the cuisine and the service. And we being from the low country, our original restaurant Stella's in Simpsonville definitely has a little bit more of a low country vibe to it. And and we source inspiration from that as well. That what you said about nonverbal communication, and that is something that has to be, you, you know, you have to practice that every day and you have to train and you have to 
you have staff meetings and mm-hmm. and um, you you just can't tell your your people. All right, just go out there and be nice. Because <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and and that happens far too often in this business. Is is there's there's no level of training. There's no standards to train to. Right. So I right. think myself and most of Greenville w- uh, are very appreciative that y'all go that extra mile, take that extra step, even though. The, bra- the brasserie, the bistro, you could conceivably go in there in shorts and feel comfortable, and, and but you still have a um, a formal level of service, yes. even though they, they might be, you go to the bistro, they're wearing Stella's t-shirts. Right. And, you know. and that was intentional. I, I purposely put the staff in t-shirts mm-hmm. so that our guests could wear a t-shirt and, and feel comfortable at the same time. That this the level of service is is high. You know, there's that fine dining level of service just in a relaxed atmosphere, and we've never wavered from that. So, what are your goals for next year? Is there another restaurant on the horizon? Maybe a food truck, or maybe just like a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> um, vacation is definitely <laughs> top priority. <clears throat> I don't know. You never know. We've learned to. Over the years, being in business for ourselves, we've learned to never say no, never just shoot an idea down. Um, I I don't know. I don't know where, what is next or, you know, where the road is going to take us, but we're always open to um, talking about something or looking at something or thinking about it. The, The decisions that we've made have truly kind of come from the gut. If something feels right. Mm-hmm. and it feels like it's the right thing and it's the right time and we have the right people, then, you know, we'll, we give it a try. And and that, you know, that's not probably the best business explanation for why we've done what we've done. But, um, you know, you kind of have to have that. Of course, the numbers have to make sense and all that. Right. But you have to have that that feeling, that, that gut feeling of, I, I think that we want to do this because it's a lot of work. And if you don't, believe in it a hundred percent and love it and think it's a great idea, then it's, it's probably not going to work. So you have to be committed mentally, physically, right. Financially, all of it. So, yeah. Once you, once you get into the restaurant business, that is, that is your total focus. Yeah. Everything else has to come secondary if you're going to be successful. And then once you reach a level of success, then you can maybe back out a little bit. I know you've got two daughters, yeah. So, um, there does there's your oldest. Does she take an interest in uh, what's going on at the restaurant? Does she, does she spend enough time over there now, or she's thinking about maybe can I help pour water or bring bread? Or <laughs> <laughs> she likes to help. Um, she does, but uh, they and you raised your kids in a restaurant right, too. So, right. I, but we made a little bit of a mistake at the beginning because they, being young and toddlers and whatnot, um, we would bring them in and hang out with us during off hours. So they thought they could, they thought that they could just go in a restaurant and kind of climb around on the furniture right. and, and help themselves to the crayons right. and the coloring stuff. Right. And, and so we, we kind of had to dial it back and say, Hey guys, you can't, you know, just do whatever you want whenever you walk into a restaurant because right. <laughs> they, not, not everybody's as nice about it as we are. So, 
But they, we say, uh, the older one anyway, she's our picky eater and the younger one will eat just about anything. But uh-huh. somebody says, Oh, your, your parents own Stella's. You, what's your favorite thing to eat there? Yeah, she grilled says, cheese. <laughs> And she says the bread. Yeah. <laughs> so they know uh, they know where the table bread is, the yeast yeah. rolls. Yeah. That I think y- you were a part of. Um, yeah. They know right where they are when they come. You know where the warm bread is. Right. They right. they know where to walk up and pull uh-huh. pull a roll right off. So so yeah, that's that's their that's their favorite thing to do. So when we adopted um, our son, I was a chef at the Augusta Grill. And so he would come, when he was a little bit older, he'd come running into the kitchen. And before he would come and hug me, he, he always had a spoon in his hand. And he would dive into the ice cream cooler <laughs> yep. to see what flavors were in there. Yeah. I was like, dude, I'm, I, I, do I get a hello or a hug? They, yeah, they just, it's a beeline. <laughs> all right. Well, well, Julia, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, that is all the time we have right now because I've got some work to do and you've got some work to do. and. And, and duty calls. But thank you so much yes. for coming out today to the Tin Roof Farm Studio. Thank you and, for having me. And tell our uh, our audience, remind us of your hours at the Bistro and the Brasserie, please. Sure. So we'll start with the Bistro. That is the one in Simpsonville on Fairview Road. We are open there Monday through Saturday for lunch and dinner, starting at 1130. Uh, 1130 to 2.30 is lunch, and dinner is 5.30 in, until 9.00. Or 10 on the weekends. And then Brasserie, we have a little bit more of extended hours there. We are open Tuesday through Sunday. Tuesday through Friday, we do a very limited breakfast from 8.30 to 10. Then we do lunch from 11.30 to 2.30 and dinner from 5.30 to 9 or 10 on the weekends. We're always open in between for coffee, pastries, happy hours. So we're kind of a little bit of everything there. And then uh, we have brunch and dinner on the weekends as well. And brunch, I understand, I haven't been yet, but brunch is very popular at the Brasserie. Brunch right? is popular. Um, people love the Sunday brunch. We have a really nice outside patio, so people really enjoy just having a leisurely brunch outside when the weather's nice there, for cool. sure. All right. All right. Well, there you go, folks. Julia Schultz, uh, the better half of Jason and Julia Schultz, Stella's Brasserie in Greenville and Stella's Bistro in Simpsonville. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, John. The Tin Roof Farm Radio Show is a production of Jack Russell Social Media, and our music is all gussied up by John Starcluster. Thank you for listening.